Well, friends, as we continue ministering here on our campus, but also through our digital campus that extends around the globe, if in any way you've been blessed by the ministry of Bel Air Church, I ask that you would consider supporting the ministry of Bel Air in a regular way. If you were to go to belair.org forward slash give, there are opportunities for you to go to the drop down. You can give directly towards supporting our television and our online ministry. But also, if you were to give to our general fund, know that that makes an impact on this campus, throughout the city, and around the globe. We have existed for 65 years because faithful men and women have chosen to invest their time, their talent, and their treasure. And we want you to be a part of that. We know that God will bless you in tremendous ways as you simply say yes to advancing the kingdom of God through the local church. And if you don't have a local church, we want it to be Bel Air. So again, would you take the time? Would you go? Would you prayerfully consider how God might cause you, how God might lead you to give towards what God is doing through this remarkable church family? God bless you as we continue to worship together. This Lent journey is a journey of descent, a journey where we remember the suffering of Christ, a journey where we recall Jesus' sacrificial love. This season we recognize our brokenness, we contemplate our mortality, and we sit with our grief. This Lent journey is one where we stop and recognize the truth, that life is beautiful, but also painful for all of us. Indeed, Easter is on its way, but we're not there yet because this is wilderness time. And though we walk through this wilderness time, we're not lost here as we take the hand of Christ as our guide. And though we walk through the wilderness, we are not alone here because Jesus companions and carries us along. And we walk through the wilderness, but we're not hopeless here because we see God's radiant love dawning in the distance. Indeed, God will show us the way, a way in the wilderness. Well, friends, as we continue through this worship service, we're moving through a sermon series in the season of Lent on suffering. And if you've been with us, it's a reminder that God is the only one who can truly meet us in the midst of our suffering that comes from a variety of things, a loss of a loved one, the loss of a dream, perhaps experiencing betrayal or abandonment. And as we work through this sermon series in the season of Lent, this is the fifth week and if you've missed any of them, or if you're going to miss any in the future, you can always go to our YouTube channel by searching for Bel Air Church. And this sermon series is called Away in the Wilderness. The director of our life groups, Rebecca Brochet Morgan, kicked us off in week one. And our entire preaching and teaching team, from a very personal engagement, is taking a look at different experiences of suffering and how we have an offer, a gift a resource in Jesus unlike anything else. And today we're going to be reminded that in Psalm 23, I continue to come back to this, it says that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say though I walk around. It doesn't say I turn away from. It doesn't say I fly high above. It says though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Our culture tells us you got to go around suffering. You've got to avoid suffering. You've got to do things just to get above it, to stay high above it. But the reality is, 
is that the only way for hope and healing and transformation is to go through. And Psalm 23 continues on. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so we have an opportunity as we go through each week to see that we have a God that meets us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our pain, and walks with it through us, sometimes even carrying us through it. And what an opportunity we have to take a look at different instances in the ministry and life of Jesus, also taking a look at other passages throughout all of Scripture to see what God offers us. You know, in our culture, it seems like there are two options that we can go down. When we experience suffering, we can either bury it, you know, put on a happy face, nothing rattles us, we don't deal with it, or we are buried by it. We become immobilized, paralyzed, unable to move forward because of the suffering that we have. This resource, many of you have been sharing with me. You know, I get your notes, I get your letters, I get your emails, I get your phone calls. Many of you who have never been to our physical campus or experienced a ministry from Bel Air Church and what a joy it is that no matter where you are, not only do we care about you and want to equip you to follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone, but also that God knows you, that God is with you, and God is for you. So today we're taking a look at the suffering that comes in the midst of waiting, in the midst of the seeming silence of God, which I must say is exponentially more difficult in our modern culture where everything is instant. We've got Instacart. We've got streaming services with an instant download. Uh, We don't have to go to the store to buy a book. We can download it right to our Kindle. We have the ability to add to cart with same-day shipping. It's remarkable how instant our culture is. And so it's almost like we're being conditioned to see waiting as a bad thing. And in some ways, we can control that in our lives. But in other areas, there's nothing it seems like we can do to speed things up, to speed up the healing, to speed up the reconciliation, to speed up the answer to our prayers. We're going to find today, I believe, a great hope and a resource in Jesus Christ. Let me read for us. This is Luke chapter 13. If you have your Bibles, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I'm going to read a a longer section here. This is verses 10 through 17. A a narrative, uh, an eyewitness account of what is happening And we will then later on come back to two many teachings that Jesus teaches afterwards to help us understand what is happening here. So this is uh, Luke 13, verse 10. Now he, this is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, 
kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. This, my friends, the reading of God's word as we say every week, thanks be to God. Let's keep these Bibles open. Uh, A reminder that in the the three public years of Jesus' ministry that began at the age of 30, there were many teachings There were many miracles. There were many healings. There were physical healings. Jesus brought sight to the blind. He enabled the crippled to walk. He healed those with leprosy. Perhaps the most dramatic of all, he raised Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus' ministry wasn't just to heal the physical. It was also to heal the spiritual. And I want you to see something here. We heard it, plain as day. It says again in verse... uh, 11, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. Now, let me say this. Uh, not all ailments uh, are spiritual ailments. And not all physical ailments uh, necessarily have a, a, a demonic oppression. However, in some cases, there can be a, a spirit, there can be a spiritual issue that manifests itself in physical ways. This is complex. This is mysterious. Uh, You know, I've seen some some pretty significant things in my 41 years of life, the last 21 years of following Jesus, not only here in the United States, but also in different places around the globe where I have seen with my own eyes a, a, a spiritual ailment that has manifested in the physical, where there can be tremendous pain, tremendous suffering, tremendous heartache, And this woman, let's talk about this case, for 18 years has been racked with a physical ailment that has hunched her over. I want you just to imagine, you know, and maybe you're sitting down right now, you know, maybe this helps you for a moment. If you can, you know, maybe stand up and and, and listen just for a few minutes to this sermon in in this posture. I mean, I'm doing this now and I'm holding the Bible and now, you know, this Bible's getting heavy. I've had lower back issues since I was in high school. And so after a while, you know, this begins to, to hurt. I feel the pain go down the back of my leg. I feel it going up my back between my shoulder blades. Perhaps some of you already have enough pain, enough ailments that you can't stand up, that you can't even get in this position. Maybe some of you are unwilling to even get up because you're like, I don't even want to imagine the pain of what it would be like to be in that position. I want you to imagine for 18 long years, A woman hunched over, going throughout life hunched over. To make eye contact with somebody when you're hunched over, you have to to tilt your neck. In 18 years of hunched over and tilting the neck to make eye contact, over, over time that ailment goes beyond the back into the neck. It begins to completely, utterly rack and distort every area of your life. This one for 18 years. 
To imagine the prayers perhaps over 18 years, crying out to God, God, save me, heal me, rescue me. And silence for 18 years. Not even two minutes and I have to stand up. And her experience is not unique to her. Waiting for an answer that hasn't yet come. You know, I think in my own life, there's been different seasons where I've wanted something, hoped for something. You know, and there's a difference between hoping for things that, you know, maybe after some time you realize, you know, that's, that's probably something I shouldn't waste my energy praying for and hoping for. I remember when I was really young and I first discovered the lottery, you know, I remember hoping and, you know, oh my gosh, my life's going to be changed. I'm going to win the lottery. I'm going to win the lottery. As soon as I was old enough to play the lotto, I spent a little bit of money playing the lotto. And, and after a while I realized, okay, this is, this is probably a waste of money, a waste of time, right? But there are other things that, that are good things, that are noble things to want, to hope for, things that even see in scripture that are good things. Like having kids. Some of you, you know my wife's and my story. And if you want the full story, or at least a, a larger story than what I'll share today, you can go back in our archives and you can listen to a sermon called The Lion and the Bear to hear a lengthier recount of briefly what I'm about to share with you now. So my wife and I, you know, we got married and um, not that every couple makes this decision, but we made the decision, you know, we want to have kids. And until you experience struggles with infertility, you often don't know about stories of infertility because it seems like in our culture, we don't really talk about infertility that frequently. And so growing up and even in our early years of marriage before we started trying, you know, we never thought, you know, that it wouldn't happen. We never thought that the, the months would turn into years. We never thought that the years would then cause us to, to make the decision in the midst of praying, in the midst of asking God for the gift of children uh, to go to doctors and to, to find out what's going on and see if we can, you know, have any medical help with this. Never did we realize that in all that went in all the prayers that one day a doctor would look at us in the doctor's office and say, Erica and Drew, if I were you, based upon my professional medical opinion, I would give up emotionally and financially in ever having your own biological children. That was our hunched over moment. Not 18 years, but years of waiting, of praying, of hoping, of crying out to God for something that we believed was a good thing to ask for, a good thing to pray for. We didn't think it was a selfish prayer and it's still, it still, it wasn't a selfish prayer. We were, we were hoping and finally to have a doctor say, I would give up emotionally and financially having your own kids. It was 
devastating. I remember driving home that day with my wife, both of us in tears. And we continued to pray. We continued to cry out to God. We continued to wait and wonder, God, where are you? Mother's Day became difficult. I remember my wife not wanting to show up at church on Mother's Day because how difficult it was for her. Some of you, you, you've got your own stories. Perhaps all of you, you have your own stories. And each of them are unique. And each of them are profound. And I believe an important thing that we must not do is to compare our suffering to others and minimize our suffering against others. You see, there's a, there's a tactic, there's a technique. On one hand, it's okay to say, you know, well, at least it's not as bad as so-and-so. But I think that sometimes in doing that, all we do, we're just burying our suffering. We're not really processing it. We're not really walking through it. It is good to have perspective, yes. But if we can solve our suffering, not by asking Jesus to walk with us and carry us and heal us and transform us in the midst of it, but if our only resources, we just say, well, at least it's not as bad as so-and-so, I believe all we're doing is just, we're just bearing, we're just tamping it down. And we used to do that. We used to say, well, at least it's not as bad as so-and-so, but we weren't allowing God to meet us in the midst of it. And we just became numb. What do you do? What is your go-to resource when you want something, when you're longing for something that's good, that you see in Scripture? It's something God perhaps wants for you. How do you deal with the waiting? You see, in all my years of pastoral counseling, I've seen that as humans, we have a lot of choices in how we deal with it. You know, some of us in the waiting, we get bitter at God. We begin to believe that God doesn't love us, doesn't care for us, that God doesn't have time for us. Some of us, we don't get bitter, we get religious. And what I mean by that is we begin to uh, do more things that we think perhaps will make the case that God should answer our prayers. So we start reading our Bible more. Not to get closer to God, we read our Bible more so that God will answer our prayers. Or we start showing up to church more, not out of obedience to God's call in our life to be part of God's beloved family, but so that God will give us what we want. We begin to treat God as a means to an end. And that's simply what religiosity is. Some of us, we, we take matters into our own hands. And we don't believe the waiting is a good thing. And we don't know how to navigate the long wait. And so we orchestrate things in our lives. Perhaps we get ahead of God in some ways and we try to manufacture the solution to what we want. Again, I'll ask you the question, what is your typical go-to when you experience a suffering that comes from waiting, that comes from a seeming silence from God. Do you bury it? Does it bury you? Well, I believe that there's an opportunity to, to have a new resource. 
But before I get to the resource that is found here in the New Testament, I want to share with you two scenes from the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that actually when I discovered these two scenes, it gave me a resource in the midst of my waiting with my wife for kids. In fact, there are two things that happen many, many, many generations apart in the same geographical spot, a spot called Dothan. And the first one is found in the book of Genesis. You might be familiar with Joseph, uh, his father, um, Isaac, whose father was Abraham. You've got Abraham, uh, Isaac, and, and, and uh, Jacob, I'm sorry. And Jacob has uh, 12 sons, and one of them is Joseph. So he's the great-great-grandson of, of Abraham. Joseph is one of 12 brothers. Again, his father is Jacob, who is the son of Isaac, uh, the son of Abraham, to make sure I get that lineage right. And there's this thing that happens early in his life where he, uh, you know, in his pride, he begins to, to share things with his brothers that cause them to be jealous. And so what do they do? They, they take him and they, they drop him off in a pit. Some of you, many of you, you know this story. And he's in a pit and he cries out to God. No answer. And the brothers, they change their mind. They don't want to leave him for dead. So they come and they want to capitalize on him. And so they sell him off into slavery. Cries out to God. Seems like no answer. He then goes uh, into slavery. He is then uh, purchased and then he's put in a Potiphar's house. Cries out to God, it seems like there's no answer. There's an interaction that he has with Potiphar's wife and then he is thrown into jail and many years go by and it seems like as he cries out to God, no answer. There are things that happen while he's in jail where uh, he has visions from God, that ultimately, after many, many, many years, puts him in the place of number two in Egypt as the ambassador. Remarkable. And as years have gone by, and seems like still he is in slavery. But as a result of those dreams, he's able to, to steer the decisions of Pharaoh at the time to store up grain during a seven-year period of plenty, so that in the seven years after that of famine, they have enough food to be able to survive. And still God hasn't reconciled him to his brothers. Uh, he's still not with his family. All these years have gone by. And the remarkable thing is that after many, many years, as a result of all these dominoes, after storing up grain, his brothers who are starving to death hear word that in Egypt, there's food, and so they make their way to Egypt. And remarkably, they're able to survive the famine, the famine that would have happened because Joseph was in a place of power. Joseph was in a place of power, why? Because formerly he was enslaved and was obedient to, to God's guidance in leaving. He was enslaved because of an interaction that he had with Potiphar's wife. He was in Potiphar's household because he was sold into slavery. He was sold into slavery because of the brokenness of his brothers. And many, 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 many years later, these brothers, 12 of them, survive. And Joseph famously says to them, what you intended for harm, God has used for good. And those 12 brothers had children. And they had children, and they became tribes 
which became the 12 tribes of Israel. And through the lineage of those people, Jesus was born. And you think about what might have happened had one of those little things not had happened. And you've got that story, the seeming silence from God. And many, many years later, another thing happens in Dothan, a very different experience. Elisha is in a tent. He's being attacked by the Syrian army. His attendant goes out of the tent and sees the Syrian army barreling down upon him, rushes back into Elisha and says, we're about to get creamed, we're about to get killed, what should we do? And Elisha says, let's pray to God. So they pray. And like that, God answers their prayer, it seems like. They go out of the tent and they see, yes, the Syrian army, but they see above the Syrian army, God's angel army, preventing them from attacking the Israelites. Those two things seem like very, very, very different experiences when you pray. The long silence of Joseph and the swift, quick, immediate answer of Elisha. Now, I don't know about you, I want Elisha's response to prayer 100% of the time. And it is tempting to look at those two scenarios and think, well, maybe perhaps, maybe uh, Elisha prayed correctly and Joseph didn't pray correctly. Well, that's not it. Maybe you might think, well, maybe Elisha was more righteous and he deserved those prayers. And Joseph, you know, just, you know, maybe there's something, his pride, who knows the reason why God didn't answer those prayers. That's not it. In fact, there's a phenomenal book. I encourage you to purchase it. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And the Reverend Dr. Tim Keller writes about these two scenes. And I'm going to read this excerpt from that book. He says this, Now think of these two divine acts of deliverance at Dothan. In the first incident, Joseph cries out to God for deliverance and rescue. But instead, God appears to do nothing at all. In the second incident at Dothan, God answers Elisha's prayer for deliverance with an immediate massive miracle. On the surface, it appears that God ignores Joseph and responds to Elisha. But that is not so. It would turn out that God had been as watchful in his hiddenness as in any miracle. The two extremes of his methods meet, in fact, in Dothan. For it was here where Joseph cried in vain. You can read about it in Genesis 42, 21. That Elisha would find himself visibly encircled by God's chariots. God was, listen to this, God was just as present and active in the slow answers to Joseph as in the swift answer to Elisha. He was as lovingly involved in the silence of that cistern, that pit that Joseph was in, as he was in the noisy, spectacular answer to Elisha's prayer. And indeed, it would be argued that Joseph's salvation, his rescue, while less supernatural and dramatic, was greater in depth and breadth and effect. The Joseph story tells us that very often God does not give us exactly what we ask for. Instead, he gives us, check this, he gives us what we would have asked for, 
if we had known everything he knows. We must never assume that we know enough to mistrust God's ways or be bitter against what he has allowed. We must never think we have really ruined our lives or have ruined God's good purpose for us. The brothers of Joseph surely must have felt at one point that they had permanently ruined their standing with God and their father's life and their family. But God worked through it. This is not inducement to sin. The pain and misery that resulted in their lives from this action was very great. Yet God used it redemptively. You cannot destroy God's good purposes for us. God is too great and will weave even great sins into a fabric that makes us something useful and valuable. And it makes me think of Romans 8 that says, for God works all things together for good for those whom God has called according to his purposes. Somehow God has the ability to take all the things in our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and to have the sovereignty and the, the power to be able to weave all that together to a beautiful tapestry of a salvation story, a story of healing, of hope, of transformation. Now, what I love about what Keller is saying here is that these two instances on the surface look very, very different. But in actual fact, perhaps there is a greater work that God does, a more complex work that God does in Joseph's life. It is a simple answer to protect Elisha and the nation of Israel from the Syrian attacking army, but much more complex over years and years and years. All these dominoes, all these little steps, all these things that seem like God is silent, that seem like God is absent, that seem like God is abandoned, that seems like, where is this going to go? That enables, because of the brokenness, Joseph to end up in a position of power in Egypt to ultimately save not just his brothers in the midst of the famine, but the entire history of Israel that led to the birth of Jesus Christ. Remarkable to think about what God does in the long, slow, seemingly hidden answer to Joseph. And so when you experience a season of waiting. I want you to consider the story of Joseph and to ask yourself the question, to ask God the question, God, are you doing something big behind the scenes that I'm not completely, not even remotely aware of? Going back to my story with my wife and I, Again, you can hear uh, the larger story at that sermon. Again, uh, the lion and the bear. But uh, God miraculously uh, did the first thing, which wasn't enabling us to have kids. The first thing was this. The greatest miracle in the entire story is when my wife came to the conclusion. And because she came to the conclusion, then I came to the conclusion. She came to the conclusion after Weeks and months of just tearful prayer, she finally felt God saying, calling her to trust in God. And my wife, her, her heart shifted, her mind shifted and prayed for the first time, God, all I want 
is your will. All I want is your plan for my life. And if that means us not having our own biological children, I'm going to trust you. That's the greatest miracle in this entire story that I'm about to share. And it shifted my heart. I wanted God's ways over the good hope that we had for kids. And something shifted in our hearts. We handed it over to God. We trusted God in the midst of it. It was still hard. It was still painful. It was still a waiting season. But we trusted God with our future. And the full story again, you can hear in that other sermon, but God blessed us through a pretty miraculous means that involves somebody else offering to be a gestational surrogate for us. And there were some complex scenes and complex things that happened through that entire period that actually shaped me as a person, that actually was the biggest catalyst in my life to move away from being a people pleaser to longing to be a God pleaser. And God did things in my life through that season that I believe had that not happened, it would have never prepared me to be the leader that I am today. There were things that happened in that season that, that enabled me to be the type of senior pastor that I am today. There were things that happened in that season that, that broke my heart open, that broke my wife's heart open for the many, many people that we know in our lives that do, that struggle with infertility. And now there is a ministry that God has given us. It's a private ministry that we have with people that we meet with, that we talk with, that we pray for who come to us and say, we heard that you've gone through this season of waiting, of longing, of, of seeming hiddenness from God. How did you navigate it? And our answers are never simple. Our, never, our answers aren't, if you just do this and this and this, then God will give you what you want. We enter into the suffering in the midst of people's waiting because we experience God entering into our suffering in the midst of our waiting. We, knew, we now have two biological sons. They're genetically the same age, fraternal twins, born five years apart. And my wife has only delivered one of them. Again, you can hear the full story. You're like, how is that possible? It's, it's God did something that we never could have imagined. But again, the point isn't that we eventually were able to have kids. The point is what God did in the midst of our waiting. That was the greatest miracle. You see, Jesus, coming back to the New Testament, coming back to Luke 13, tells two quick stories, quick, two quick parables after this healing. It begins in verse 18, these two. Uh, Luke 13, verse 18, he said, Therefore, Right after this healing, right after this healing of this woman who has had a spirit crippling her for 18 years, he heals on the Sabbath, which in a religious culture was a no-no. He does it anyway. And in Luke uh, 13, 18, he says this. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what should I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the garden. It grew and became a tree, 
and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he goes on, another parable, the second one. And again, he said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Interestingly, Jesus tells these two parables and they reveal to us the nature of the kingdom of God and the nature of how God works into the brokenness of humanity, God's hope, God's healing, God's transformation. You see, mustard seeds are small. Yeast is even smaller. But we've seen what happens when these two things that God has created over time, can do. You've seen trees sprout through the ground, grow mighty. You've seen roots dislodge concrete, even affect the foundation of houses. There is a power that comes from a tiny seed. You know, mustard seeds, though small, though tiny, actually grow very strong and very powerful. They're an invasive species and they can actually take over everything around them. They can become greater and more powerful than all the other plants around them. Yeast, so small, has the ability over time to work in such a powerful way that it begins to transform entirely that which it works through, that mixture of water and flour. There's a principle here. There's an image here. There's a, a hidden truth here. That though small in beginnings, the kingdom of God, once it is planted, once it is put in, becomes an unstoppable force. And the truth is, is that the the healing power of God is perfected in eternity. And one of the things that I have to hold in tension is the truth that many people will go to their death still waiting for healing. They will go to their death still hoping and praying for something that this side of eternity they don't see. And yet we must understand that God's timetable spans eternity and that our physical death is not the end of the story. And the truth is that every single one of us, after our death, our resurrection because of our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus will heal all of us completely. As C.S. Lewis says, he will make all the sad things untrue. That some of us, we're going to have to wait until we're in God's presence to experience for the rest of eternity the thing that we've been longing for our entire lives. And in some cases, we see that on this side of eternity, God answers prayers in miraculous ways. He did it for this woman. He's done it for many of you. But the real opportunity, I believe is to allow God to meet us in the midst of waiting for the seed of God's love to be planted in our heart, for the hope of God's promises to be embedded in the midst of our waiting and simply to allow it to grow and to allow God to walk with us through that pain, 
to walk with us through that suffering. And rather than think that once we finally get the answer, that's when God has answered, that we can see that there are actually each step of the way are opportunities to trust God. Each step of the way is an opportunity to worship God. Each step of the way is an opportunity to cry out to God like in Psalm 13, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To continue that pleading, that lamenting to God. And as we walk with God, as God walks with us through that waiting, a transformation happens in our hearts. I love how Catherine Wolf, many of you know her story. She started an organization called Hope Heals. She experienced a very traumatic, a very horrific uh, physical uh, stroke that resulted in uh, paralysis that that in many ways people thought, doctors thought that she would never be able to survive, that they never thought she'd be able to walk, that she'd never be able to talk. And she has a ministry now. She speaks all over the globe. She has a camp that people with disabilities come to. She has a ministry of a podcast and books, and she speaks with her husband all over the world, all over the country. And she says, never waste your pain. Never waste your suffering. And God is using in her story of waiting to show all of us that we all have disability, that we can all trust God in the midst of it. So friends, whatever it might be in your life, would you know that you have a God that comes to you, that he longs to plant seeds of hope, of healing in your life, and that as you allow him to walk with you, he will create in you a resilience, an ability to not bury and not be buried by the suffering that comes from waiting, but that God will transform you through it. That's my prayer for you. May you walk in that truth. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you answer prayers in ways that only you can. May we trust you in the midst of it. May we turn to you first in the midst of it. And may we find in you not a quick, easy answer, always like Elisha, but may we find in you a God who enters in. That in the full timetable of eternity, always answers all that we ever need, even the things that we're not aware of. As it says in the book of Ephesians, that God does immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. May we trust you. May we cry out to you. May we praise you in the waiting. It's in Jesus' name I pray. We stay together. Amen.